babe, own it. You're tired. That's just life. Uh, I think all bets are off at the moment. No? Yeah, to be bloody honest. <laughs> There's nothing you can do. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking away and nobody knows who the hell I'm talking to or what we're talking about. Have we started? <laughs> we're going to just start properly now. Um, <laughs> hi, my name's Claire Jamfie, founder of the British Blacklist. And I've been chatting away. I don't know how much of the beginning bit I'll leave in, but... I like to let my guests introduce themselves because I might say the wrong thing and or leave something off the resume. So you introduce yourself with whatever titles and skill sets you'd like oh to. This is awkward. Well. Yes. <laughs> um, Andy Osho, professional she lover. Thank you. Professional Actually, she- more of a hobby, to be fair, because I've not been paid for it as of yet. So I'm going to say hobbyist shoe lover. Wait, wait, wait. So hobby is shoe lover. What type of shoes? Oh, man. I mean, there was a time when I was, it was a heel all the live long day. But I, I well, I'm going to say I twisted my ankle a, couple, a little while ago and that's made it impossible. But I think I was already on the rocky road to flats before that happened. So do you have a whole wall or row or stack or cupboard or walk-in of shoes? Not a walk-in as such. So um, I've got my clothes all on rails. And then, so I've got those hangy things where you slip the shoes in. So I've got like three of those. And then I've got a shoe rack down here. And then underneath my clothes rails, there's more other shoes. (laughs) Yeah. When did this problem begin? (sighs) Auntie, I don't know. (laughs) It was quite a while ago. Can you watch? So you're saying that you've made this decline to, well, I, I, it is a decline because I'm in this space. Just flat. in height, right? Like in terms of like going to flat. Yeah, literally, that- mine, are, mine are now flat. It's just flat. Yeah. I cannot, literally, it pisses me off. I cannot wear heels. It literally is a problem. I thought it's because my bum grew bigger because as I got older, I got heavier. I thought the weight of my ass <laughs> bore down on my heel. So then I could not walk in heels. I love the logic. <laughs> I'm blaming my ass because what the hell? Why yeah, I mean, you tell you got to tell yourself what you need to hear to make it okay. <laughs> so why did you make the transition to flat? Twisted my ankle, couldn't walk in my it heels. Was, literally. I couldn't walk actually for a little while, but then, because I didn't even think of my little boots with like a couple of inches as heels. But when you've injured yourself, even just a minor injury, like a twisted ankle, you suddenly realize how high some of your shoes are, you know, and there's things, the shoes that I've been wearing, just like day-to-day shoes, with a heel that I can't wear anymore. See, I hate, I'm envious of women like you because I cannot wear shoes in the day. I can't walk around in heels. I had one friend that used to just wear heels like they were slippers. And I, it <laughs> literally, for me, was literally going out and I am that girl in the rave that will stay in the heels. I won't dare put my foot on the floor, but my foot and my body will look like, sorry, Auntie Whoopi, when she's um, in Ghost and she's doing that walk and she's <laughs> like, look, literally that's my um, ego in heels. When she's Oda May, Whoopi Goldberg and Oda May, in ghost that is me in heels oh i love it I've, i'm picturing it but to be fair i mean it's not like i'm the person i think of is victoria beckham who seems to just be able to sleep right. you know everything in heels i'm not that do you know what i mean like every heel that i've got i look at it in terms of hours how long <laughs> have i got in this before i'm dying do you know what i mean and i can't believe we spent about almost 10 minutes talking about heels um, <laughs> well, that's so, where we are so now you're a retired kind of heel fan and so you've had yeah. to pick up some other skills I'm sure yeah like wearing flats <laughs> so okay sorry do you want to get off shoes is that what you're trying to say I mean I'm just saying like if you want to talk about the other brilliant <laughs> skills you have because, but hold on which flats are you like a, tra- a trainer or literally a brogue or something 
gosh I used to wear trainers all the time yeah. and then I looked at my my shoes and I was just like where are they like mm. somehow it was very very quietly they just seeped out of my life so it's more like brogues I'm looking at them now brogues like boots got an, yeah. like a high boot that's a, that's a flat I got it from Clark's and I'm oh. not even ashamed of that I'm proud of it no no that's I where think... I'm at now no, let's not, because I, <laughs> I, I avoid Marks and Spencers. Sorry, brands, I don't care. You know there's an age group that you appeal to. You know, my, I have this long-standing battle, you know, African mums. My son, Spencers, I'm not spending, like literally I used to have to battle her and it was always Marks and Spencers stuff. So I rebel. Oh, really? And I rebel against Clark. I think I had a pair of shoes from Clark's. They were a good, probably a boot as well. I'm not doing it, I refuse. Now, what, why is that? Because I was like that as well. And then one day, I was like, I need something comfortable that looks all right. And I'm like, I'm going in. I disguised myself, obviously. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> it's because our mothers, more than likely, were like, Glag shoots Mars and Spencer's. And it's like, for me, if you were anything like me, the rebel was strong within me. And I was like, I'm not doing it. I'm from London. I'm very modern very fashionable I'm not going to Marks and I'm definitely not going to any rave in Clark's shoes no I mean no <laughs> that's that, that's not ever gonna happen but saying that a brogue uh like a stylish brogue with a nice designer trouser and a vest top if you're going to a jungle rave or something like that that would have worked but yet I could not yeah okay okay we weren't bougie like all that Marks and Spencers and Clark's <laughs> that's a lot no anyway we're not doing this anymore <laughs> all right okay, also fine. please add your extra skills you are also okay so i think what you're talking about is like acting and, and writing and comedy you know that type, is that the sort of thing you're talking about Possibly. i mean okay. i think that's what got you here really <laughs> wasn't the shoe thing shoe thing i don't think i don't know if anybody knows about your shoe fetish hobby gosh i talk about it a lot Really, but then you should have you should have a like look. Oh my god, we're back to shoes. We should, you should <laughs> See have a how show I do. by now. Yeah, I know you should have a shoe by now. A shoe, a show by now. Andy Osho shoes. See your name, Andy Osho. Andy Osho. Yes, that's so, it. The Andy Osho show. Yes. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna it. pitch it. I'm just gonna. Yeah, I'll, I'll just park it for it. now. Let's park it for now. But just, I also want like thirty four percent because I helped irk it out, eke it out of your brain. 34%, that's really specific. <laughs> Not even a 33.33, like 34%. Just, I, it just makes sense to me in my head. Okay, yeah. cool. all right, we can all talk right. about it. Fine. Yeah, that wasn't me agreeing to it. That was me just going, we'll talk about it. Okay, fine, we'll talk about it. And then hopefully, if I don't get my, well, hopefully, if I don't get my 34%, there will be reviews from the British Black. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's there it is. I'll use my critical powers to say, yeah, the yeah, <laughs> shoe show, shoe show was not very much of a show. I give it 34%. Yeah. <laughs> and it was only about brogues from Clarks. I mean, seriously, what kind of program is that? Okay. What sentence best describes your life right now? Oh gosh. Oh. Uh, mm. or, or word. That's, word. that's a that, um unpredictable mm. yeah i i think of myself as quite an organized person but I'm, I'm i'm trying to organize myself but just stuff is happening and it's great you know the there's a book coming out and a podcast coming out and things happening but it 
it, it does my brain in a little bit because I'm I'm a little I don't know if it's control freakery but like I like to plan the day and so when all random stuff happens that's brilliant I sort of go ah, ah, I have to change my plans and I don't like doing that but the brilliant thing comes in so I do what's is it isn't being a comedian slash actress slash writer slash author unpredictable in itself or is something different happened and I'm think I'm thinking on the back of all this crap that's happened I guess in 2020 and all the craziness that's happened is that what's making it more unpredictable is this standard life For, well it's just this particular moment because the book's coming out and the podcast as well that's what makes it unpredictable but yeah I mean it, it's definitely an unpredictable career because you you just never know what is around the corner be it success or some project that you're passionate about imploding so you, you just never know what's around the corner but you like it I like it you like I like it, it. so Okay, we're going to go to the book first. I could do your whole life story, which I will get into in within 20 minutes. But uh, tell us that you say so you're an author. First book. Yeah. Why, why, why a book? Why who told you to write a book? <laughs> you know, I, it's funny, actually, because I've realized that how much I like just trying stuff. I mean, it's a classic, the cliche thing. Everyone's got a book in them. And I've always wanted to do it, but had the same fears that most people would go to if they were thinking about writing a book. I don't know how, um, I, I don't know if my story's good enough, no one will like it, all that sort of stuff. But then there was just like a, a set of circumstances that came about that led to me getting a book deal, pitching a book and, and the publishers going with it that, you know, then I was like, oh, okay, so I've got a book deal now. I got to write this thing. So that, that's literally how it happened. I wasn't sort of looking for it as such, but they, this particular publisher were after sort of strong comedy female voices. And I was there. <laughs> so. Fair. Then how do you, cause I, yeah, everyone's got a book in them and I definitely aspired to be an author before I got into all of this stuff. Cause I've got half written books everywhere. Uh-huh. But, but, and I say books because I'm giving it a title, they're just pieces of paper with words on them um, at the moment. What was the, how did you structure and how did you learn on the go? Because if you're saying you didn't have, you weren't necessarily a taught, trained or whatever, however you get to be a trained author, how did you structure yourself or learn? Um, gosh, it was baptism of fire, to be honest. It was literally throwing myself in, started writing, um, didn't know, didn't have a, a process really, didn't have a structure or system. I was just, uh, you know, I, I, like I say, I'm organized. So I was like, okay, I'll try and finish chapter one by this point, chapter two, blah, blah. And I had to deliver three chapters to my editor to, you know, just to show where I was at kind of thing, get some feedback. And that took me ages to even get that far because I was trying to painstakingly perfect every paragraph, every, you know, section before I moved on. And then I sent it to her and she was just like, yeah, okay, good, good great job. <laughs> like these characters, but, and basically what she was saying is it read like, uh, pretty much like a screenplay. Cause that's what I was used to writing. Yeah. That's what I'd been pitching and working on up until that point. And so she's like, you gotta, you gotta leave a little room for prose for what are the characters thinking? What's happening? Describe the room, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, oh yeah, that does happen in books, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that it was literally like those sort of fundamental level of mistakes or, you know, schoolgirl errors I was making. And many times I was just Googling like, how do you blah, blah, blah what's another word for said, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I was literally that level. So it took me, uh, it took me a long time to write this book, like over the course of two and a half years, it didn't take two and a half years, but I was writing over that period of time. 
And a lot of the time it was either me and a huff, like, I don't wanna do it, I can't do it. I don't know what I'm doing. Me trying to learn how to do it. And, and, and then a percentage of the time was me actually doing it. So it was a very, um, you know, it was the biggest creative challenge I've ever had. It's having to write on demand to a deadline and then have someone kind of tell you, that doesn't work, this doesn't work, this doesn't work. How much of every part of this story is in the book and, or, and how much did you have to be like, okay, concede and adjust? Was there any of that or is it predominantly your story? Yeah, I mean, they, whatever they suggested was always in support of the story. It was more, it wasn't take that out. It was more like, give us more, give us some backstory. Tell us a bit more about these characters. And my problem is, is that I have this sort of <laughs> weird psychological tick where I think that's the best it can possibly be. Like what I've done is the best, it, I can't do any better sort of thing. So whenever, whenever I get notes, I always just like chuck my toys out. That's my first like impulse. It's just like, well, we, all right, you do it then. If you're so great, you do. And then I'd put the toys back in and go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, that could be better. Yeah, I could do that. And it's almost like a, a, just a reflex now, <laughs> like every time I get notes, but at least now I know that about myself. So I can just have the reaction, relax, and then look at the note more objectively. Do you know what I mean? So rather than like freaking out. I love that you acknowledge that. And I love that I'm, I can imagine being the people in your circle, like, yeah, yeah, just let her work let through that. And back in a minute. It's like, yeah, you know, when I've done that before. I've thrown everything in my bedroom around when I got in trouble and realized oh, I'm just going to get in more trouble. So <laughs> exactly. And it's exactly that. So your book is called Asking for a Friend. Yes. How long has this book been in you? Probably, hmm, there's going to be a few years because. I kind of wrote a treatment and that treatment was sort of left to cook for a little while. And then I started having conversations with publishers. So I'm going to say a few years at least, but it was more the impulse to write the book that was in me for a long time, rather than this particular story. And now it feels like, ah, oh, this is doable. And ah, oh, I've learned a lot of things from, you know, the mistakes or the things that I could have done more efficiently the, the first time around. So it's more, it's more like, tapping into something rather than this is the story I've got to tell. And then, so it is called Asking for a Friend. Can you tell us in a nutshell what it's about? Yeah, so it's about three girlfriends having no luck in their love lives. And so they decide to go out and ask guys out, but for each other. And it goes wrong with hilarious consequences, but it's also about their friendship. It's three black women who are all professionals. They're, they're great at their jobs, but they're, relationships are at their Achilles heel because every one of the characters looks at relationships from a different space but they're all stuck in their own way they don't all realize that they're stuck or they don't realize their foot's nailed down and so uh, as much as anything this book is about their journey to, to realizing why all that is the way it is and also it's a celebration of female friendship it's probably a split between the relationship stuff and the sort of friendship stuff I've read it on speed dial so I want to have time to read it properly um, because this is the thing about life reading has gone like lower down on my list and I'm so sad so so sad about yeah reading. a lot of people say they're struggling with reading over the lockdown because of the concentration like they, 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 they find it really difficult to sort of focus so I, I, I completely get that I mean asking for a friend I think is a very not light read as in superficial because I think I hope that there's some stuff in there that's deeper than just about bants and jokes sort of thing but yeah it is it's tough during lockdown to sort of focus it, like that 
No, it is. And I think it's, it's also the what we're bombarded with. We've got so many options. And as I, I think for me, personally, it's um, being in media and having to watch and edit and do so many things. Right. I watch a lot. So now that's where I never used to watch. I watched a lot, but not a lot. Reading, my bookshelf is stacked. I've got, it's hard. But yes, you're right. Your book is an easy read. And what I know is I love that you actually said Black women in your as your character d- description, because I find that some books are like, her dusky tone or her hearty skin or her, her, her coily hair with a distinctive bounce. And I'm like, what the fuck? Is she a black woman or not? Like, what the hell is your puppy? So I love the fact that you said, like, there's an, and I don't know if you, that was conscious or you just like, well, what other word is there? She's black. What is it? What's the point? Well, I mean, that's, I mean, it's not by chance. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, uh, they are. So, there it is. I know. Then I just, <laughs> just like I know you're saying it like yeah, like why not? But literally, the amount of books I've read, unless they, you know, distinctly from a black author, there's descriptions as it's like, can you just say they're black? Yeah. Or, or maybe right to the end, I'm like, oh, so she is black then, because finally you found a way to just say it without it being hidden mystery. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I get it completely. It's funny actually because I was talking to a screenwriter or aspiring screenwriter a few years ago, and we were talking about diversity. This is before the real sort of, I don't know, I feel like it comes in crests, like in terms of the conversation around diversity. And so this is before maybe a couple of crests ago. And she was just like, I I don't know what to do. I I mean, I I don't put, this is a white writer, okay. So she goes, I don't, I don't put the um, ethnicity of the characters. And she felt like that was helping by being completely neutral on the subject in her writing. She thought that that was a contribution. And it's just like, no, Right, that it is an Asian character, right? It's a black character, right? It's a trans character, binary character, right? That the woman is 60 and still trying to have a baby or whatever it is, you know what I mean? Don't shy away from it and think that not having any, like making it completely neutral is actually a contribution to the to the conversation because it's not, you're just like trying to circumnavigate it. Exactly, and thank you. I appreciate the fact that I knew that there were three black women. So who, which one of you are? There's a Simi, Jemima and Megan. Jemima and Megan, yeah, that's right. All of them. Really? At different ages. So, like Megan, who's the youngest one, she's 29. She's like fiery, very opinionated, got a life plan. That was definitely Osho back in the day, thinking married by 21, kids by 25, sorted, done, career, boom. So then Simi is like 36, full of self-doubt wants to be an actress and that was slightly after I became an actress but still like not kind of making it just wants to be in love she just wants she loves being in love but it just never works out me um (laughs) and then Jemima she's kind of closed off she's been hurt badly and she's decided that the best way is to just shut herself down shut herself away from love and just be this very self-contained box and even though she's friendly and she's lovely and she loves her friends there's a degree of self-preservation in terms of how she relates to the world like she's got smooth edges on the side you know what I mean there's not really a way in so also me (laughs) as you described I can hear the love and the I can hear the who, who they are to you in each um, in the, each aspect of their personality. So it sounds it's good. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I don't want to go into it because people need to read the book. However, you're asking people out. Have you ever asked anyone out? God, I used to do it all the time. I'm pretty Did sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, I mean, 
the thing is, what I want with this book, right, is I want women to go out and do this. Because I even put the rule, there's a, the game has rules and there's the, I've put the rules at the back of the book. I want women to go out and do it. And I'll tell you for why. It's not so that they can meet somebody. It's because I want to normalize women asking out guys. Because I think we're pretty conservative still in that sort of heteronormative space of just like, no, no, no. I mean, it's cute if a woman does it, but there's something off if she does. We had a conversation with me and my girlfriends about would we ever ask a man to marry them? <gasps> there was a resounding no, thank Hell you. Hell no. But it's because I think the fucking patriarchy, <laughs> <laughs> it's the way society is set up is that you men have got it so good that if they don't want to do something, women are running behind them, hoping and wishing. It's That's never. It. Like, so, yeah. So, would you ask a man to marry you? Do you know what I would like to do is be in a situation where we converse about it. Okay. So it's not this big moment that he orchestrates necessarily, but that we talk about it. Like, do we want to get married? Cause that is a, that, I mean, I think I saw this on, on like social media or something, someone talking about how entitled a marriage, how much of a demonstration of entitlement a marriage proposal is. <laughs> I want you to make a decision about the rest of your life now because I've got a ring and I've set this whole thing up and my best mate's filming it and all your family are here. Now, decide now. Yeah. <laughs> and then woman, what else can you do? But go, oh, oh my God, yes. And it's that pick me. And I, it is that thing like I've been chosen finally. Thank God a man wants Right. Me. I hate saying it out loud. However, my heart jumps at the thought of saying to a man, yo, so bro, do you want to get married? And he'd be like, I've just got to check my diary <laughs> and then crumble my whole little woman existence into pieces. All the things I've achieved will be reduced to nothing because he said, possibly, maybe, no. Possibly. Do you know what though? I, I, I mean, this is a different conversation really, but I've really been looking at the, I, I coined the phrase fairy tale complex yes. of like how we idealize relationships. And if you are in that fairy tale complex paradigm, of course you're going to want a guy to propose because that is part of, the that's part of the structure but if you've broken free of that in any way then but you know it takes both of you to do it then that makes everything possible anything is possible the woman proposing you guys having a conversation about how it's going to work you involving the kids if there's you know if it's a blended situation kids what do you want to have happen do you know what i mean but the, as 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 as, as, much, as soon as you're in the fairy tale complex then that, that's the only um, structure that works is the man proposing to the woman and, and in, an, in as an ostentatious way as possible. I, I fully agree and I, I'd like to change it. I'd like, you go first and I'll be behind. <laughs> okay, I'll let you know how I get on. Yeah, you do that. <laughs> See me um, single for the next 10 years. <laughs> okay, maybe not uh, that long. But okay, so look, you actually tell jokes, you write, what came first for you? Which... So first was acting. Mm. And so I worked in TV post-production for about 10 years and I was content. Maybe content isn't the right word. I was satisfied, but I was kind of a living for the weekend kind of person. And so I didn't love my job, but I thought I could see a career path sort of thing. But then I ended up working on a TV soap that's no longer with us for the rest of the soul called Night and Day. It, was, it lasted like two years, I think. Okay. It was on there. But anyway. But the point is, is I ended up sort of hanging out with the actors and that just 
stirred something in me. So that was the first thing I did. And then acting, I did it for two or three years before I started to notice I wasn't getting so many auditions. We're starting to get stage fright. And so I was like, what can I do in between waiting for these auditions to come through to allay this stage fright that was starting to really become problematic. And I was like, stand up. I've always wanted to try it. I've always wanted to do it. Let me, let me do that. Cause at least I'm in charge of when I get some stage time, when I'm performing sort of thing. So I did that and it completely eclipsed the acting. I was still, you know, still going up for auditions at the same time. But as soon as I started doing, you know, the multiple weeks and things like that, the acting just fell away. Cause my focus was mainly on, on, on that. Cause there were so many opportunities coming my way. But then were you like, were you funny doing post-production and stuff? <laughs> Who told you you were funny that you could go in this? Oh, let me just go and try stand up. I think I'm funny, but I don't know if I'd have the guts to fucking get on the stage. Well, I, another phrase I've coined is um, naive arrogance, uh-huh. which is what gets me into pretty much ev- everything. I have the naive arrogance to think I can write a book, to think I can go on stage and be funny, to think I can act, to think I can start a podcast, to think, with no experience of doing any of these yeah. things uh, for a lot of the time beforehand. So, and I sort of, I like that, you know, because because otherwise, how are you going to move? Do you know what I mean? How's your life going to move if you haven't got some degree of cockiness <laughs> that tells you you can do this? Were you a funny child? Yeah, I mean, yes, actually, yes. I'm I'm being coy. Yeah, I do remember sort of like making teachers laugh as well, which is you know, it's kind kind of cool feeling yeah. to make an adult laugh when you're seven. Sort yeah. Of thing. So yeah. I did like making people laugh. I, you know, occasionally make the family laugh and stuff like that. I mean, me and my mum banter a lot about people we know and little impersonations of people that are close to us and stuff like that. So it's definitely in the family. There's a very dry Osho sense of humour. So yeah, for sure. Um, And also you tell you, I'm doing the perfunctory questions now. So you start in like the obvious kind of training ground for actors like Holby City, Eastern and the like. What's the equivalent for comedians? Is there like a, not back to the fire, but like a, kind of you've got to go through the ranks of these particular I don't know comedy houses or something like that too well at the time I think yeah it was probably probably just the circuit in general but I think um, um, a stamp of approval before you get onto television is probably getting on at the comedy store that was where a lot of people's energy was focused is trying to get you know your first 10 and then if Don likes you then he'll you know he'll book you for your first 20 that's the thing getting 20 at the store and then getting a weekend at the store because it's well paid and you know I mean it's like it's a it's a it's it's the church yeah it's the comedy church but now you know the landscape's changed I haven't done stand-up actually for a while because there's so many other projects going on so I'm I don't really know exactly how it works now but you can come in through lots of different doors now you know for example mo um, the comedian he's I, I believe he was on the on the circuit but it was his work on social media his instagram yeah. stuff that was really what tipped him over the edge so there's lots of different routes in now which is kind of exciting because it means different voices because mm. the thing about places like the comedy store which are brilliant but it's pretty monocultured for the most part in terms of what voices get heard so has it been hard for you black woman <laughs> can we talk <laughs> do you want to, have we got an hour no <laughs> yeah exactly in four minutes please <laughs> yeah let me see what I can do I, let me see what I can do yes and no yeah because you know it's not like I'm you know I say this with whatever modesty is appropriate but it's not like I'm not successful sure exactly yeah sure. but it's like what success could I have had had I been from a different demographic 
Mm. So it's so so in one sense, I am, you know, I feel strongly about diversity and not just in front of the camera. Great. That's lovely. But what I want to do is step onto a makeup truck and see, you know, a diversity there. I want to see diversity in the camera team and sound guys and directors, producers that have have hired me and stuff like that. Until that changes, it it is harder because I I think when I was really more prominent in the stand up world, I was considered a risk. Yeah. So I was a safe bet if it was already an established show. So I was, you know, Mock the Week would, would had me on several times and they were very, very generous in that respect. And I'm very grateful for that opportunity. But I pitched many, many, many times my own vehicles. And it was like, no, no, I think so-and-so is doing something like that. I think, da, 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 da. well, ITV have already got something going on. Oh, well, we don't really do that. So, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, because I hate the fact that, like, in the bio, when you read up on a person and yours is like, Andy Osho show sketch pilot, pilot, pilot. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's that classic thing where you see things that, I mean, that are substandard getting made and you're just like, wow. I mean, it's like, I was, I was, I was watching on Amazon, you know, the trailers that they throw up on Amazon and it was like, <laughs> there was one the other day, it's like, James May can't cook. And it's just like, that for me is the very definition <laughs> of like that privilege of like fail your way up, you know? And, and I know that that's a construct for the show and that he's got a following and all the rest of it. So I get why it's there, but it just made me laugh. It's just like, white man cannot do a thing. Let's give him a show. <laughs> You're speaking my existence. And I don't know how much I can say to, without sounding like I'm, I'm crossing some sort of line, but seeing who gets millions of millions of pounds or dollars to mm. make something that if I submitted it, mm. I would be laughed out the room. Mm. Or if my idea, which is so much more better, would get laughed. So how do you stop from being a bitter black woman? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's real because there's someone that regularly comments on my um, social media and is that, that voice kind of thing. And I just think to myself, no, I can't go down that road because otherwise you will, you'll eat yourself alive, basically. So I keep doing my do, I keep just keeping on and know that there is movement, there is progress. uh, And it's not like there aren't opportunities coming my way. So I have to have this kind of dual existence of doing my thing, but also trying to be as vocal and advocate as as what works for me in terms of bringing about change. I think that's fair because I think I I am this year trying, because last year I was approached by a lot of people and there was a lot of, Hand, hand wringing and guilt, white guilt, I must say. Mm-hmm. We do, how are we gonna do it? And I was like, just do it. The word is just do. Don't mm. see black people as a risk or a threat or a problem to stay on humanity. And just, just let's just do and just catch on, get on with it. And this year I really wanna um, celebrate what we do. I mean, obviously my platform's about black people. So just celebrating rather than just being stuck in this victimized, oppressed space because I had a lot, I've had a lot of conversations about, oh, so we really want to do some things about the Black Lives Matter. And I'm like, I understand that. And I'm, a, you know, Black Power and all that type of stuff. And let's not be killed at the hands of whatever. But I also want to talk about the great things we're doing because there's so much positive stuff going on. And the fact that, go on. No, I was just going to say, there is a sort of um, um, a hole that we can fall into or, or, or media types can fall into of this sort of, you know, white liberal guilt type of thing. But where there's this tiny little... Um, window of black life that they're allowing in which is basically rooted in black pain Mm. 
Like they're very comfortable making a green book, but they don't want, they buried birth of a nation. Do you know what I mean? So I absolutely agree. I think it's about now, like there's some films I just, I, I'm not ready to watch. Do you know what I mean? Like even the Martin Luther King FBI, I don't know if I can watch that because I don't know if I can take. I watched it. It's a really good documentary for sure. I bet, I bet. Uh, being the bonnet that J. Edgar Hoover had about a black man minding his own business. And it is that, it's a, and what that whole documentary, it's a good watch, it is an informative watch. Um, and it, maybe it's not for us to watch, it's for others to watch. And well, that's what I'm saying. I want to watch Malcolm and Marie. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I want more of that, where yeah. their race is irrelevant. That's two people just have breaking down yeah, having a, thing, and you know, finding out what love really is. And it's, it's got absolutely nothing to do with the color of their skin. Because, you know, day to day, that's how black people are living. It's only when we go out into the context of the rest of the world that we become black people. So yeah. how's it about some films that just show us living our lives? Because that's what I really liked about like the role I played in Curfew is we were just we were just a family. And it's funny, because when I got the audition, I said, this is a white woman's role. Quietly to myself and to my agent, I said, I'm not gonna get this. This is a white woman's role. Cause it, it felt too big in the story. And it was too, she was, you know, she just had too much going on that was interesting. I was like, this is, I'm not gonna get it. And then, and I said, um, Who's, who's playing the husband? And they were like, Adrian Lester. I was like, they're, they're gonna cast a white woman. It's gonna be like, it's gonna be a black mixed couple sort of thing. And then I found out who one of the kids was. And I was like, well, well that kid's black. <laughs> the, mom's, the mom's gonna have to be black. No, this doesn't make sense. Like, and I went in and I, you know, I, got, I got the job and nothing about our story is related to our race. We're just a family trying to survive. And I think that's where I see the next phase of diversity is more Malcolm and Marie, just people peopling. And you, because I had the question about that, because I, I was literally going to say, you had a black husband in um, curfew. And I was like, this does not happen, especially in the UK. They have this thing, diversity means definitely interracial or nothing at all. Uh, and I lament, because I'm a black woman who dates black men and not for nothing, I'm not, it, you know, it is what it is. My taste is my taste. Mm -hmm. But I feel like as a black, a black woman like me is not catered to at mm, all mm. in the visuals on screen, especially in the UK. I can get a bit from America. We won't talk about shadism because that's a whole other thing. But at the yeah. very least, we will get black couples in a lot of American products. But over here, it's hard. And so I was like, seeing you and Adrian Lester, and it's like Adrian Lester is all going, you're right, because I would assume that they'd put Adrian Lester with a black, with a white woman. Mm. Even though he has done other things, but it's just like, and you, a dark skinned woman, and you're black, black, together black. So yes, I understand. You're like, oh, I'm definitely not gonna get this, but then. But then, yeah. see, that's how I've internalized the state of the state of yeah. the industry is that like, I've made assumptions and the, the casting people weren't thinking that, but I've internalized that sort of, you know, what I've seen already in terms of how things work. I mean, I've had quite a few black husbands actually, but you know what it is as well? <laughs> I mean, yes, I was like, it's happy. Thanks. <laughs> no, but you know what it is as well, is like, what, what I'm also interested in is where the roles, where it's a black husband, but the story has nothing to do with their race. Cause yeah. I'm thinking of Kiri, cause uh, you know, Lucy yeah. Nelson was my husband in that, but that yeah. was the, our storyline was connected with our sort of cu cultural heritage. And so for me, the next phase, I get that those stories were all cool and good and you know they were appropriate at their time but the next phase is really just showing life how it really is yeah like because we're not we're not living in the you know racist anguish day to day we're living our lives but yeah. the but the media would have have you believe or have 
the rest of the world believe that's how black people are just like thinking about blackness all the live long day and when you want an expert on the news it's only it, it, only you see black person when it's related to their blackness you know and all that sort of stuff but it's not it's not how we're living our lives so I'm looking forward to that truth yeah I agree and we're funny so uh, you mentioned Mock the Week and shows like that because there is a conversation about not having black comedians on these type of shows where mm-hmm. we're Actually, funny. We're very funny. What's the problem? We're very <laughs> funny people. I mean, well, it's a one at a time thing, isn't it? I mean, and it's not even. I mean, Mock the Week is the one that gets all the flack for it, but they they were actually quite supportive in a way, and like it's it's all of them. It's more like the whole genre was very like no female hosts for a really long time. No, you you'd only have one black person on it as the we're a genre as well. So uh, you you can't double up, you know. We've already got Gina on, so we can't have have her or whatever. But that's changing now, and you know, seeing like team captains and you know hosts yeah. and things like that and obviously we're sorry I didn't know and things like that that's completely changing it up as well anyways so I think panel shows are realizing that you know it's time for change but it's very slow very slow well, this country's slow in, in, in itself um uh I'm just trying to get through my things before I have to kick you out um <laughs> but I guess I, I did spend a lot of time on shoes to be fair so, and I, yeah. I I cuss you for that but um <laughs> things are changing and you were in I may destroy you and I'm sure like I suppose maybe when people mention projects where they're so super phenomenally, amazingly massive and changing the game, what's it like being, you're a significant part of you played the therapist, but what's it like being in a vehicle like that and watching someone like Michaela get her moment in of glory, um, deservedly, but then what's it like being a part of that, a black woman and watching a young black woman do her thing and possibly change, or she has at the very least changed the landscape for a lot Very of much so, yeah. Um, yeah, it's thrilling, obviously, because the project was great she was great but she but what was also interesting to me was watching the leadership aspect of it Mm. of like what's possible when we're put at the helm Mm. and seeing how she conducted herself which was you know very gracious with humor and kindness and putting her arms around it felt like you know it felt like the whole crew were with her like you can tell a lot by how their team responds to them seeing her in the leadership role was inspiring as well because the team was incredibly diverse and it felt effortless. It felt effort- probably a lot of effort had been put into it because I know how normally stuff gets crewed up sort of thing. It just felt good to just have, you know, a black sound guy put my mic on for a change. See, you know, black people in the camera team, you mm. just don't see it. And it's actually quite, you sort of just get used to it after a while, but it's boring. It's really boring. Was that the first time? Not the f- first time with Black Sound Guy, yeah, for sure. But like, just generally, it's probably the most diverse team behind the camera team that I've, I've worked with. It's not like there aren't on other productions, but that for me was the standard, I think. That's what I would like to see behind the camera from, from now on, because it's just not like that normally. So you have been to Hollywood. When I watched Shazam, I was like, oh, hold on, I know that lady. <laughs> I was in a writing class with that lady. That's right. <laughs> um, have you made that? Are you, so, and you did live in America. So was this always like, I've got to fuck England, I've got to go to America? Or was that just a natural, oh, this job's happening, I'm in America, okay. No, it was, yeah, the former. <laughs> but I was also re sort of calibrating in a way because stand up really 
as great as it was, it kind of took its toll mentally after a while, like to the point where I, I'm, I need to stop doing this for my, for my own sake sort of thing. So I went to the States more to just like reset. And so, and then some cool stuff happened while I was there, including Shazam and Lights Out and things like that. And, but I think there was also a degree of sort of finding myself mm. to, to use the old um, spiritual cliche, but I felt like stand up was limiting me in terms what? of how, how, how people saw me and how, um, how I saw myself really. And I dared to give myself permission to call myself an artist, which I wouldn't have done before. I would have thought that sounded a bit sort of, who does she think she is sort of thing. Oh God, artist sort of thing. I, I had loads of preconceptions about the word, but I realized there's more that I, that, that I want to do that I can do. So while I was there, that's when I started, you know, tampering with filmmaking. I was writing at the book a lot of the time when I was there. And just really allowing myself to do what lights me up rather than what's expected from me. That's fair. And uh, who are you today in comparison to the, was it in the Royal Court writing course? Yeah. yeah. Many moons ago. Was it called Critical Mass or something? Critical Mass. Yes, it was. Yeah. yeah. I I think it was Ola. Yeah. was our teacher. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so funny because who I was back then, I had no clue. I was working at BBC Writers Room. And I was like, I know I want to write, but just, okay, cool. I managed to get into that. And didn't know who the heck I was, to be honest, or why am I? I did not know I'd be doing what I'm doing today, for sure. Yeah. But who were you then? Then? When would that have been? 2008 or something? So maybe I hadn't even started doing stand-up. I was just um, small, I think. Just like not knowing, just a bit scared still holding on to sort of certain dreams and it's not like I'm not a dreamer now but I think I've let go of a lot of things and just realized that you know once you get to a certain level of success with certain things what I found is all that glitters is not gold is really true like you know the pinnacle of my stand-up career I never made more money than at that time I was on tv all the time getting recognized getting offered certain things and all the rest of it and I was depressed, you know, I had quite acute depression for a while and that was during that time. And so reaching for those things that you think you want, they're not always the things that you really want. And so now I'm more like, what do I enjoy? Then do that. What do I not enjoy? Do less of that. <laughs> and that's it. And I think probably the time in the States gave me, and, and, and everything that's happened since then has given me the confidence to say no to the things that don't really work anymore. And just to park things that even though I can do, I don't have to do because they don't satisfy me creatively. So, okay, <laughs> I'm just gonna do a quick getting to know you round and then you may have your day. So okay. tell me a book that you have to have in your collection. Um, have to have my collection. Well, apart from the dictionary. Oh, well, that's a good book to have. Yeah, words, mate. I've had to find so many words to write a book and I'm doing it all again. Um, a song or an album that defines the soundtrack of your life to date? Ooh, um, I don't know if this is, well, Songs in the Key of Life is the one that first comes to mind. Oh, Mr. Stevie Wonder, for sure. Okay. Yeah. So there's a film, a film or a TV show that you'll watch whenever it's on repeatedly, wherever you are, whenever it's on. Gosh, A Few Good Men. Really? Yeah. Like I want to go to bed. Oh, Shawshank is another one. I want to go to bed, but then I said, no, oh, all right. All right, here we go. Okay. 
So an unforgettable stage performance, and that could be a concert play or a dance performance, something, something that was unforgettable or impactful to you. Hmm. I want to say live at the Apollo, but sometimes it's not those big gigs, actually. It's the smaller ones. Like I remember, uh, yeah, some, some of the shows, Edinburgh shows that I did were really, oh, there was one Edinburgh show actually where I took the whole audience outside because it was a sunny day. So yeah, we were in like one of the smaller venues, one of the stands, like smaller venues and it was sunny and it was Scotland. So how often does that happen? I just write, right guys, let's go out. So we went out and I did the show in this like little, you know, like ornamental garden that was like just up the road. I felt like the Pied Piper leading, leading all these people out of the stand, like into, into this little garden. But yeah, that was, that was pretty memorable. I like that one. And finally, what's made you sad, mad and glad this week in that order? Sad, sad, sad. I mean, the, the thing that comes to mind is the whole US election, because that ticks all those boxes, really. I'm not one of those people who's like, oh my God, yeah, Joe Biden, he's the answer to all our problems. Kamala Harris, answer to all our problems. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And I never will be because they're quite conservative Democrats, okay? Yeah. So let's just see how things play out. They're the most Democratic type person Republicans could stomach. And that tells you something about what's possible under their tenure sort of thing. So I'm sort of glad, but I'm not like jubilant. I'm sad, obviously, about the shit that went down at the Capitol, but I'm glad because a lot of who America is has been exposed and Britain's gone through the same thing. It's almost like we're going through this reckoning at the same time. And so I'm glad. It's ugly, but yeah. it's the truth of who we are because all this, oh, this is not America. Oh my God. It is, okay? It is. All that ugly stuff, because we're, we're complex nations. We're not one thing. We're not all, you know, Star Spangled Banners and whatever, or you, you guys, that they aren't. But our nations are all made up of all kinds of types of people who have all kinds of sentiments. And so I'm glad that that stuff got flushed out. I'm glad they did what they did. And I hope that America realizes a bit more about who they really are as a result of that. Agreed. And so finally, can you tell us, about the podcast, I didn't ask you about the podcast, it's a new podcast, and when we can get your book, Asking for a Friend, please, thank you. Yes, here we go. So the podcast, um, I love talking about creativity, right? I just think that everyone should have it in their life. I think the world would be a nicer place if they did. Trump would have been a nicer guy if he'd had access to crayons, I'm just going to say. Uh, not, to, not to eat, you know, but... <laughs> because <laughs> you never know what he would do with them but anyway so the point is I love I love talking about creativity so that's what the podcast is about I'm talking about all different subjects related to like the first um, episode is about rejection and I talk about creative hustle criticism that type of thing so that's coming out on the 9th of Feb what's it called oh sorry babes it's called creative source <laughs> I see and you. Yeah, it's called Andy Osho's show. It's called Creative Source with Andy Osho. Cool. And yeah, so different, um, talk, just talking about the whole thing of being a creative, really. And then um, the book is out. So the ebook is already out now. And then the audiobook and the paperback is out on the 4th of February Ooh, through I, all I good I book outlets. I saw your unboxing and I was like, that must be such a feeling of joy. Oh, mate. It was, yeah. I mean, they sent me some proofs. That was kind of cool already. So I'd had like five proofs sent over, but then getting a big box and it's embossed. Yeah. You know, so I was just like, what? I forgot that they, that, that was going to happen. Oh, God. Yeah. Congratulations. Oh. 
it's like, I can't believe we haven't spoken ever, but um, all in good time. Well, in that, yeah, in that time since, wow, since, what do you call it? Since critical, yeah, since critical mass, jeez. Yeah, we've had a moment to stop and check. But I love what you're doing, you know, with um, Blacklist. It's just, come on now. Thank you, man. Thank you, man. And the people you get, when I saw you interviewing, is it Tracy Ellis Ross? Yeah, that was like, eh, me. <laughs> my biggest one was Felicia Rashad, because literally Claire Huxwell is my mom. My mom's oh. That was a bit like, and with junkets, such a different thing, because junkets are like such small snippets of time. You really mm -hmm. I, and I'd love to like have spent like 20 minutes saying, oh my God, oh my God, I remember on this episode, I remember on this episode, so I had to contain myself. But yeah, no, um, thank you. And it is, it has been a crazy weird journey. Okay. Uh, well, thank you as well, because, you know, you know.